Uh, the reading tonight is from Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the Spirit, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Thanks, Aurelia. Uh, well, welcome to everyone tonight uh, and welcome everyone online. It's lovely to be here together after the planning day, which was very productive and also a lot of fun. It was terrific to be together in one of our four things that we do each year that bring the whole community together. Well, uh, we come to uh, look at Ephesians 3 and some of you uh, who've been coming to church for the last little while might be thinking to ourselves, didn't we finish Ephesians? Because last week we did Ephesians 6 and so today we were just reading Ephesians 3. Well, the reason that we uh, read that passage and Aurelia read that so well tonight is because uh, Paul Tate last year said to me, he said, you know, one of the good things about the way we preach at Sorrel Bible is we go through books of the Bible. But sometimes as we do that, which is a good thing to do, but sometimes a shadow of that good thing is sometimes we skirt over some issues that uh, we could spend more time on. And so what we thought we'd do is, uh, with Ephesians, the staff thought what we might do, uh, Jai suggested that we had three weeks between the next series, so we thought, why don't we do a mini-series on spiritual warfare? And the reason we picked spiritual warfare is that's an abiding theme right through Ephesians, and you would have seen that explicitly last week if you were with us when we looked at Ephesians 6 and we talked about the armour of God. Put on the armour of God so that you might um, fight the good fight. Well, what you see in Ephesians is the victory of Jesus over Satan and the spiritual realms all the way through the book of Ephesians. And yes, we did deal with that. But what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to look at three passages in particular. We're going to look at chapter 3 which we just heard read. We're going to have a, another look back at chapter 2 and we're going to have a brief look at chapter 6 again. And the reason we want to do that is we want to cover three themes that are related to spiritual warfare. The first is that Christ is victorious. The second is that Satan is defeated. And the third theme that we're going to look at is how do we live in the victory of Christ? What does that look like? Now, the reason that's important is because Christians can sometimes be a little bit confused. 
I grew up in the 1970s and the 1980s and the theme of spiritual warfare was really big in the church in those days. In fact, there was a, a, a book that came out that was called Piercing the Darkness. And many of you who are my age might remember how popular that book was. It was the number one bestseller and the whole book was set, uh, it was a fiction, but it was set in a small country town in America and the premise of the book was that the whole town is ringed by angels who are protecting the town from an onslaught of demons and it was kind of almost like a military war story based on these demons and these angels fighting each other. Now, that's, that's fine. You know, someone's had a bit of an interesting thought about what spiritual warfare might look like. But the interesting thing that might surprise you is back in the, the mid-'80s, we had an assistant minister at our church at Guymer Anglican Church preach on that book for a series and went through spiritual warfare based on that book. Now, if you'd have used that as an interesting starting point to then jump into Scripture, you'd think, oh, that's fine. But what he did was he went a bit further than that. He actually used it as a framework to help us to understand spiritual warfare. Now, you could probably imagine the problems that could occur when someone uses a fictional book to preach on spiritual warfare. But the motivation was, and the interest from the congregation was, is there's so much uncertainty about the spiritual world in our generation we don't know what to think about a lot of things that sometimes the Bible doesn't talk about. And the problem is Christian uh, fiction writers, but also Christian authors who aren't writing fiction, can sometimes try and fill in the gaps for people. And the problem with filling in the gaps is that the Bible doesn't actually always tell us everything there is to know about something. And so if in our desire to know more we start imagining what it might be, that can lead us down some rabbit holes that might not be helpful. And the result is that even in our generation, sometimes we can have a bit of uncertainty about things we can be certain of. And so what I want to do in the next three weeks is I actually want to look at Ephesians, but I also want to partner that with some stories from Mark to help us to see what we can know about the spiritual world. And so what I want to do now is I want to dive straight into a very famous story of Jesus engaging with the spiritual world and I want us to begin there because I want us to actually ask ourselves what is there to know explicitly about the spiritual battle that we are in as we read the Bible itself? What does the Bible writers tell us about spiritual warfare? Well, what we're going to do first is we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 before we go back to Ephesians chapter 3. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, I'm going to use this as uh, a way of introducing the fact that Jesus has victory he has victory over the demonic forces. As we've said in this series, there is a reality that there is a spiritual world, even though we can't see it. Jesus is alive and seated in heaven on his throne, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. There is a heaven, there is an angelic host, there are cherubim in heaven described in the Bible, but equally there, is, there are rather dark forces in this world. There is a Satan and there are demons. And those forces in, in that dark spiritual reality are opposed to God and his people, as Ephesians 6 last week was talking about. The devil is actually interested in trying to have control over people and to stop them being freed by Christ. And here in Mark chapter 5, we see an explicit example of that conflict in the pages of Mark chapter 5. 
This is one of the most exciting stories in the Bible. And it starts out in quite a pedestrian manner. In chapter 5, verse 1, Mark says, they went across the lake to the region at Gethsemane's. And so Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and they go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And in verse 2, when Jesus gets out of the boat, this is when things hot up. Have a look there in verse 2 if you've got a Bible on your lap. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And that sounds terrifying. What's going on there? It sounds like a, a fiction movie, doesn't it? Like a, a Hollywood Halloween movie or something. There's a guy who's in the tombs who has an impure spirit in him. What does that mean? There's a human being who has a spiritual evil force in him. And if that's not scary enough, this person comes out of the tombs and comes down to the beach where Jesus has landed in his boat with the disciples. Now in verse 3, Mark gives us some more detail. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, but tore his chains apart and broke the irons of his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day in the tombs, sorry, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, I have deep compassion for this guy, amongst other things. What a terrible life to be living away from your community because they're so scared of you that they tell you that you can't live with them anymore and you have to live with the dead. Here is a man who is living, living amongst the dead. He's almost a living dead man himself. He's living in the tombs because he is a danger to his community. He's, he's being bound by his community because they're terrified of what he might do because he has this impure spirit in him and they even chain him with steel and he's able to break that so in their fear they've told him you have to go into the tombs and the result in verse 5 is not just during the day or not just during the night but constantly this man is racked he's living a miserable existence of being completely overwhelmed by this spirit or spirits as we'll find out so that he cries out and he cuts himself with stones in the tombs in the hills. Now it says there in verse 4 that no one is strong enough to subdue him. No one. But in verse 6, when Jesus from a distance lands on the beach, this man runs and falls on his knees at him. Now, I have sometimes read this story and as you do sometimes with the Bible, you kind of sometimes put yourself on the bench of what I would have done in that situation. I sometimes associate myself with the disciples sometimes wondering what they might say or what they might be feeling as they see Jesus do all these amazing things. But can you imagine going about your daily activities with no actually expectation that something bad's going to happen and some guy runs out of the tombs He's cut, he's bleeding, he's probably got remnants of chains on him. can't imagine what he must have smelt like. I can't imagine what state his hair must have been in and his teeth and his hygiene in general. Was he wearing clothes? Maybe not. He might have been fully naked as he ran down. This terrifying strong man runs down the beach and I sometimes think of the disciples going, whoa, stepping back. 
But what we do know, sorry, what we don't know is what the disciples were thinking. My imagination went there then. But what we are told is what Jesus does and what he says and what he's thinking because in verse 6, when Jesus saw him from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. This man, this terrifying man, falls on his knees in front of Jesus. The one who can't be bound falls on his knees. Now, what is falling on your knees? That's a sign of submission, isn't it? The man who is terrifying is now terrified. Have you ever thought of that before? The most terrifying man in the village who can't be bound and is shot off in the tombs because people don't understand him and they don't know where his strange power comes from and they're worried he's going to hurt them this one who is terrifying others is now terrified of Jesus and he falls down on his knees in front of Jesus and we get the detail here this is because Jesus says in verse 8 come out of this man you impure spirit now Jesus has insight doesn't he as soon as he gets on the beach, he's not like us and the people in that village who don't know what's going on with this strange guy. They can only guess what's happening beneath the surface, but Jesus sees the heart and he also sees the spiritual world. He knows exactly the fact that this man has been possessed by spirits. Back in verse 7, the man actually shouts out while he's on his knees at the top of his voice, must have been terrifying, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, what I find really interesting is as Jesus sees what's going on in this man, the spirits in this man see what's going on with Jesus. Time and time again, as Jesus interacts with people, they don't really see who he is sometimes. They'll say things like, who is this man who speaks with such authority? Or how does he command you know, such power? How can he do these things? Where does he get his authority? And we're going to find out next week that some of the religious leaders actually assume that Jesus himself must be on the side of Beelzebub or Satan for him to have the power over Satan. But the spirits actually don't see any confusing narrative here. They have clarity. They look at Jesus and they go, um, sorry, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, it's interesting, very few times in the gospel, Jesus is described with that full title. But these spirits see that he is Jesus, they know that. They know that Jesus is not just a human being, but he is fully God and fully man because they don't call him the son of Mary or the son of Joseph. They call him the son of the Most High God. They instantly recognise him for who he is. So here's a battle that about to take place between good and evil. And we get a glimpse into that battle. Because here we see the spiritual world explicitly calling out each other. Jesus calls out the evil spirits and the evil spirits recognise who he is. Jesus says in verse 9, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied. Now I don't know much about Roman history, but I know that a legion is a section of a Roman army and I do believe that it's actually a whole Roman army, I think. Someone might like to correct me later. It's not a part of an army, it's an army. Like a legion is the whole army. Not a battalion, not a squad, not even a section, but presumably with all the hierarchy of, of uh, this, this army, this army has indwelt this man. So Jesus is actually facing off against an army of impure spirits. What is your name, Legion? He replied, for we are many. See there in verse 9? 
Then the man begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Actually, it says not to send them out of the area. It's quite, quite interesting, isn't it? He begged Jesus again and again not to send them. So there's this insight into these spiritual forces are actually speaking through the man. They're actually calling out to Jesus as the man is talking and the, the, the witnesses are seeing all of this take place. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. What are they doing in the area? And why don't they want to leave? Well, what they're doing is they're, we know what they're doing. Mark tells us they're imprisoning this man. It seems the purpose of this army is to enslave a person and divide him off from his community. That's exactly what they're doing. And presumably they're enjoying their task and they don't want to stop doing that. And they're on their knees begging Jesus, we recognise you are God and you have authority over us, but please don't stop us destroying this man's life because that's what we want to do. Now... This is a really interesting passage because it's quite confusing and quite strange. Verse 11, A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Presumably that will allow them to stay in the area if they go into the pigs. Verse 13, He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. What is going on? First of all, there was enough impure spirits to fill a whole herd of 2,000 pigs. I didn't realise people kept big herds like that. They must have. This tells us that we're not in a Jewish area, that we're in a Gentile area because Jews didn't keep pigs and so they didn't farm them because they were impure. So impure spirits are going into impure animals. There's a lot, of, a lot of symbolism caught up in that to start off with. But here we see that the legion is actually what it claims to be. Because don't forget, Satan is a liar. He is a liar. He tries to lie. So even though he said we are many, might have been two or three, but when Jesus allows them to stay in the area by going into the pigs, 2,000 of those pigs go off the into the sea which says to me it really was an army it was a legion an army of demons how terrifying imagine this poor man being consumed by an army of terrifying impure spirits who want nothing but his bondage and suffering well the pigs go in and get drowned when i was young and i used to read that i was really confused for a few reasons one was, why didn't God, sorry, why didn't Jesus just send them to the abyss so they couldn't hurt anybody anymore? Why did he let them go into the pigs? The other thing I used to think is the poor pigs. <laughs> I was like, oh, they've all gone and run and drowned. It's funny what kids think, isn't it? I don't know what you think as you hear that story. But there's a, there's a, a theologian by the name of Peter Bolt who's written a book called Living with the Underworld. And what Peter Bolt does in a really interesting way is he has studied the occult beliefs of first century Jews. Now, that doesn't sound like, you know, a, you know, a really easy thing to do or maybe even a very exciting thing to do. 
But what Peter has spent his career doing, he was a more college lecturer when he wrote the book Living with the Underworld, where he describes the occult beliefs of the Jews of the time of Jesus. And now he's actually my principal at the Sydney College of Divinity, where I'm studying for my PhD. So Peter spent a lot of time in his career studying what did the Jews actually think about the world of darkness? And the reason he was interested in that is because in the Old Testament, there is so little detail about Satan and demons and the underworld and hell and Sheol, the place of the dead, that he was interested in what did they make up about those things. Just like in the 80s when my minister made up a whole heap of stuff about angels and demons from that book, Peter's argument is back in the time of Jesus, people didn't know the answers to a lot of things about demons and they made stuff up. And you can read about it because they wrote it down. And when he read up all the different theories, he realised there was a couple of things that actually related really interestingly to this story. First of all, first century Jews believed that bodies of water were entrances to the place of the dead. Not just the place of the dead, but they believed the entrance to the abyss into hell was a body of water. And so as he reads this story, he's reading it not through our lens of 21st century Australia, but he's reading it as the disciples would have read it. So what Peter's trying to do is he's not necessarily saying the disciples would have believed all the writings at the time about the underworld, but he says there's a good chance that they didn't know what was going on and they knew those stories about the fact that, the, that bodies of water are entrances into Sheol. And Peter's point on this passage is this. He says the demons call out to Jesus and ask him if they can stay on the earth to torment people. And even torment pigs if that's all they get to do see that's what they do they torment and destroy and if they can't torment and destroy this poor man they'd rather torment and destroy these poor pigs if they could but what peter says is interesting about this story is as it unfolds the pigs run off the hill into a body of water and his guess and it is just a guess but it's very interesting is that as the pigs run into a body of water, the, the disciples would have assumed, and probably the pig herders, that those pigs were not only drowned, but those demons have gone into the abyss. And the reason Peter makes that point is, he thinks that whether a body of water is an entrance to the abyss or not doesn't matter. It isn't actually, you know, you don't jump into the river down at Grace Point and go looking underneath and there's all these demons swimming around underneath. Like, that was a, that was a view of the Je Jewish people when they didn't know anything. They made stuff up, right? But what he's arguing is maybe Jesus is using those pigs as a living metaphor for the disciples to show them that he has authority over these demons. Not just partial authority, that he can free the man, but then the poor pigs get tortured. Pigs still go on the river. But Jesus has shown that he has power above anything anyone could ever imagine. That he has victory over these, these demons, which is a final victory, not a partial victory. Now, one of the problems for Christians in our day and age is we live with this question, how much power does Satan have over us? Has he got any power over us? Is there sort of like, could he 
maybe do something to me, to hurt me, especially when we read Ephesians chapter 6 and we're told to put on the armour of God, is the opposite true, that if I don't put on the armour of God, that somehow maybe the demons and the devil might hurt me? Well, in verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what happened. It caused a big commotion. Verse 15, when they came to Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there dressed, so there you go, he probably was naked, dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. That's strange. So they're afraid of the man and they send him to the tombs because they, they are scared of him. But now they're not afraid of the man anymore because he's dressed and in his right mind. So what are they afraid of? They're afraid of the living God. That's who they're afraid of. That's an appropriate thing to be afraid of. Because right through the Old Testament, we're told by all of the writers of the Old Testament that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Now, I'm a surfer. I don't surf much anymore and I don't surf as much as I'd like to but William's egging me on here, saying get into it. But one of the first rules of surfing is you have an appropriate fear of what you're about to paddle out into. Particularly if, like the Baileys, when they go on holidays to Hawaii and go up and surf in big surf, if they do get to do that, if you surf big surf, you need to be afraid of that because you'd be silly if you didn't. Likewise, we've got to be careful that we, un we don't underestimate the power of God in our day and age. Because a lot of our contemporaries have underestimated him to such an extent that they say he doesn't even exist anymore. But he does. And he has power over the spiritual world. And these people have seen it and they're afraid of Jesus. In verse 16, those who had seen it told the people who that had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They didn't understand. They were, they were terrified of his power. Like they don't know Jesus very well. This guy's got so much power, he can send a whole army of demons that we're terrified of into the abyss. What will he do with us? That's the question they have. We don't know what he's going to do with us. Well, we know what he's going to do with us. He's come to save us from these demons, not to hurt us. They're assuming that if he has power over these things that are trying to hurt them, he might hurt them too, but he's not. When we're told to be afraid of God, it's not that... We've got to be afraid of him hurting us. We've got to be afraid of him judging us. That's what we've got to be afraid of. Now, Jesus has come to save us from the evil of this world. But if we refuse his offer of salvation, then we are part of the evil of this world. And just as he will judge all evil, he will judge us too. See, what happened to those demons? Were They were judged and sent into the abyss for their oppression of this man. But Jesus getting into the boat, the man comes over and he knows Jesus isn't going to hurt him because he has experienced the saving power of Christ and what we see here in this passage is an equal measure of salvation and judgment hand in hand, which often happens in Mark. The pigs are judged and sent into the abyss, not the pigs, sorry, the demons, but the man is set free from those agents of evil that had entrapped him and prisoned him and he is free. So he begs to go with Jesus. See what knowledge does? The lack of knowledge from the people means they're scared, and, and rightly so, because God is God, and we should be afraid of his power to send us into the abyss if we do not repent of our sin and accept his offer of grace and mercy. 
But when we are saved by Jesus and we are set free by Jesus, our response to him is delight and joy. And this man begs Jesus, please let me come with you. You've given me a second chance at life. You've given me my life back. But interestingly, verse 19, Jesus didn't let him go. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has, on, has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell all the Decapolis, which is all the cities that were Gentile cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where the Jews lived, and all the peoples were amazed. Can I just draw a simple point out of this? Jesus has taken a man who had been disconnected from his people and reconnected him to his people. See, Jesus not only reconnects us to him, he reconnects us to each other. He forms a community for this man who was living in the tombs. What a beautiful, beautiful end to a story. And presumably, for the rest of this man's life, he tells his community about what Jesus has done for him. And so one by one, he is disbanding their ignorance with understanding about the spiritual world. Presumably, he can speak with authority about how terrifying Satan is because he's endured the torture of those demons, but he can talk about the surpassing power of Jesus Christ who has victory over Satan, which isn't partial, it's complete. So Jesus has the victory. Now let's turn over to Ephesians briefly. If we turn back to Ephesians, this is actually what we are reading in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. Paul is actually explaining that the mystery of the spiritual world has been exposed and we now understand it. So we have knowledge and we don't have to make up stuff from the things we don't know. We can actually rely on the reality that Jesus has victory. But look at this, this is interesting. Paul, who was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, is writing this. The interesting thing for Paul that we looked at a few weeks ago was Paul is, is partly a prisoner for Jesus Christ because he's actually literally in a prison, this time not by spiritual legions but by actual physical legions who've arrested him and put him in prison in Rome. And Paul's actually a prisoner. But another thing he is is he's been set free from his past life that he lived and now he's free... He's so free, he's a prisoner of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying the same thing that this man said in the book of Mark, I beg you that I might just be with you. It's almost like Paul feels chained to Jesus because he has given him such a beautiful thing. Just like this man wanted to go with Jesus, Paul's like, exactly like Peter in the Gospels, where, where else have I to go? You have the words of eternal life. And can I say, Christian, sometimes if we don't understand the full, beautiful power of Christ setting us free from, from the chains of the devil and from sin and death, sometimes we don't appreciate how good it is to be a Christian. And sometimes we feel like we want to be a Christian, but we want to have all these other things in our life too that we can enjoy. But here Paul's saying, I enjoy being a Christian so much that I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm willing to give up everything else for this guy. Jesus is all I need. And what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is when we get to the third sermon, when we live in the victory of Christ, the question I'm going to ask us is, is Jesus enough for you? Is he so stunningly beautiful that you understand his power, that he's defeated death and Satan, that he is enough for you and you don't need anything else? 
because I think that is the goal of all Christians, to slowly die to self and to slowly more and more not fall in love with this world but just be focused on Christ so that we have the right perspective of these things. But we can only get there if in verse 2 in Ephesians chapter 3, it's by an administration of God's grace. See, the spiritual Christian is someone who has been indwelt by another spirit. Haven't we? Do you know that? That when you accept Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, you are actually having a spirit indwell in you. But it's not an evil, impure legion. It's the Holy Spirit of God himself. No longer does God dwell in temples made by human hands, but he dwells in the heart of those who love him. Wow, isn't that magnificent? How could anything hurt you if the Spirit of God is living in you? If you ever hear someone say, be careful, you know, a spirit may you know, oppress you or a spirit may indwell you, if you're a Christian, you don't have anything to fear. Because Jesus drove out a whole army of those things and sent them into the abyss. And he won't let anything abide in you that would hurt you. And this is the mystery that's been made known. We, we don't have to stand back and go, we don't understand the spiritual world anymore. We understand what's going on. It's by revelation that we understand the mystery in verse 3. As I've already briefly written, he says, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to people of other generations, as it has been revealed by the Spirit. Isn't that cool? So the Holy Spirit reveals to you something new that those farmers and those disciples didn't understand. Those disciples might have thought the pigs ran into some body of water that was some entrance into the, into the spiritual you know, abyss. But as Christians, what we know is whatever, wherever those demons went and whatever happened to them, I don't have to worry about them because Jesus is in control and he's got the victory. And he won that victory when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. That was once and for all. And when he did that, what he was doing is that the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles have now become heirs together with Israel, together as one body, one community. So just as Jesus said to the man he set free from those evil spirits, go back to your people, what he does is the victory over Satan is so, so, so powerful that he is able to call to himself and make a new community out of all the communities of earth. Once it was only the Jews who could be the people of God, but now he's brought in the Gentiles and that's the mystery. That Jesus has gone to the Decapolis and declared his power to the Gentiles is a foretaste of what he's about to do, which is to bring together the Jews and the Gentiles to be his people. And when he gathers us together in his arms, he is not going to let anybody come and mess with us. The Satan cannot take you away from the Lord Jesus. And the question begs, why? Why is it that the devil doesn't have power over people who have Jesus and have the Holy Spirit in them? I think verse 7 answers the question briefly. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace given me to preach to the Gentiles and boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to them 
to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has been kept hidden in God and created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. In him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Let me summarise. There's a lot there, but basically, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sin. The only thing stopping you approaching the throne of God is your own sin. If that's been taken away, you can approach the throne. So if that is true, the opposite is true. The only thing Satan has power with is people who are still caught in their sin. So if someone is still not forgiven for their sin, Satan can have power over them. But the gospel says that if we put our faith in Jesus, our sin's taken away, that means the devil has no power over us. So when Jesus sets this man free... That's a symbol of what he's doing for the whole of humanity. He's setting us all free. And what that means is Satan doesn't have power over us anymore. So to finish, if anybody says, oh, I know it's not in the Bible, but, you know, do you know that demons can do this or that or the other? Just say, no, they can't, because I've given my heart to Jesus. His Holy Spirit lives in my heart, and Satan can't touch me, actually. He has no power over me at all. I am free, like that man in the tombs. And if that's what your appetite, next week we're going to look at the defeat of Satan and then we're going to look again at what it means to be free and why we don't have to be scared of demons anymore. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful message that we received from the Word tonight and we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to go home tonight and put our heads on our pillows completely free from fear knowing that you have set us free and that Satan has no power over us because Jesus has the victory. Amen.